Good morning, and welcome to all the saints of God who are listening to our broadcast this morning. I had originally intended to continue my sermons on the text which we began a few weeks ago, Exodus 20, verses 1 to 10. However, since that last message, I had been compelled to change my text and deliver the message before us this morning. By and large, it is intended to be a wake-up call to all the pastors, teachers, elders, and leaders in the churches who profess to belong to Christ. Shame on all of us. Shame. For decades now, our church leaders have turned their backs on the Savior, and instead of proclaiming Him and the gospel of salvation, they have sought to become seeker-friendly churches catering to the fancies of the unsaved. Instead of feeding, leading, and protecting the sheep, they have been entertaining the goats. There is not, it seems, a shred of discernment in our churches today. Women preachers, women teachers, women elders, all in direct opposition to the Word of God and in rebellion to Christ our Savior. And the tragedy of it all is that in their exuberance because of rising numbers and bigger and better church buildings, more debt, more calls for greater giving, they have neglected the gospel of grace and the Savior who bought us. And now we have the perfect storm, COVID-19, leading to draconian restrictions upon our freedoms, lockdowns leading to the loss of livelihoods for the average citizen, but ever greater returns financially for the elites, both in government and in privileged positions in the financial behemoths, who together are now ushering in the new world order. The churches have been closed, by and large, under the guise of health concerns due to COVID-19. Very few churches have obeyed Christ and continued to function biblically through all of this. One brave pastor comes to mind, John MacArthur, who bravely chose to obey Christ rather than the heathen governor of the state of California. They have fought court battles, endured severe criticisms, even threats on their persons. But through it all, Christ has led them. Where are the other churches? Why are they not leading, heeding God's voice? Why are they fearful hiding in their homes behind computer screens and calling that church? God help us. Where is the yielding of self to Christ? Where is the trusting in Christ to keep us and to lead us through all of this? Churches are being split and divided as never before. Is Satan finally winning against the church of God in all of this division? No, God forbid. I believe something else is happening today. God is sifting his people. God is allowing his people to show him where they really stand, regardless of the cost. 
The Apostle Paul writes this most solemn warning to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate. And what he was saying was this, Dearly beloved, you profess to be Christians, but your actions reveal the opposite. You claim to have received Christ as your Savior, but you refuse to yield your lives to him as your Lord. You continue to live in sin and are carnally minded. There is fornication, incest, and all sorts of division commonly reported among you. Dearly beloved, if you are truly his, then you will repent daily of your sins, and your lives will start to reflect this. Therefore, examine yourselves if you are really saved. Examine yourselves if your lives truly reflect the new man. Examine yourselves whether Christ truly lives in you, for he lives in every Christian. He lives in every heart which trusts him as Savior and Lord. And if he doesn't live in you, then your life will soon reflect that. It is a very dishonest thing to profess to serve Christ and then not to yield your life to his control. And so with those thoughts in mind, I would like to turn to our main text for this morning, which comes from Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 to 22. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 to 22. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open, and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shalt observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. But if ye turn away, and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship then, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them. 
and this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight, and I will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to every one that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore he hath brought all this evil upon them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank thee so much for thy holy word. And as we examine this text before us here this morning, we pray that the Spirit of God will be pleased to illuminate our understanding and help us to discern thy will for us this day. For we ask it in our Savior's name always and for his glory. Amen. I've entitled the message for this morning, COVID-19 and the Real Church. Dear friends, time is running out. The order and stability of free democratic societies is disintegrating quickly. Lawlessness is now widespread, bringing with it its natural terrible consequences a complete disregard for authority of all kinds. If you have been watching the news lately, then you can't help but see the massive riots worldwide involving groups of dissension and anarchy such as Antifa, Black Lives Matter, etc. And more recently, ordinary law-abiding citizens too have taken to the streets protesting against their loss of freedoms which countrywide lockdowns have caused. And now, still in the adjudication process, the presidential election which was sabotaged by the rogue element of the Democratic Party is quickly destroying our hopes of a free society. Innocent citizens are being arrested for violating COVID restrictions imposed upon them in direct violation of their constitutional rights. Most governments have now become emboldened by the success of such restrictive measures and are completely ignoring the law and the protections that the law was meant to afford us. Lawlessness is one of the unmistakable signs of our Lord's imminent return. The Lord Jesus himself told his disciples in Matthew 24, 12, And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Lawlessness shall abound. Rebellion against authority shall spread. The free world applauded the massive protests in Algiers, Egypt, Libya, and Syria, 
only a few years ago that brought down the corrupt regimes in power. The free world applauded the hope for change and a better future. But when those same massive protests began in France, in Britain, the United States, and now Canada, there is a different attitude towards them. The worldwide spirit of rebellion towards authority in general should be a wake-up call to all who call themselves Christians. What has gone wrong? Why such a quick disintegration of our political, financial, social, and moral structures and institutions? The answer is simple and can be found in our main text in Second Chronicles 7, verses 12 to 21, uh, 22. Here we read about young King Solomon. In chapter 6 of Second Chronicles, Solomon had just finished building the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. In that chapter, Solomon prays a beautiful prayer of dedication and a plea for God's blessings and for God to forgive Israel her sins when she repents. Solomon concludes his prayer in verse 42 of chapter 6 with, O Lord God, Turn not away the face of thine anointed. Remember the mercies of David, thy servant. Then in the opening three verses of chapter 7, we see that God honored Solomon's prayer and God's glory filled the temple, so much so that the priests could not go in. And when the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement, and worshipped, and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Then King Solomon and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord, a most joyful occasion. To be able to worship the Lord and know his presence among his people is a wonderful thing. But now we come to verse 12, and we read that the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and has this most interesting conversation with him. Now, this is the second time that God appeared to Solomon at night. The first time was in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7. When Solomon prayed to God for wisdom and knowledge to rule his people Israel, and God, pleased with his request, also added to Solomon riches, wealth, and honor, such as none of the kings have had before him, neither shall have after him. But here in chapter 7, verse 12, God appears the second time, and promises to own this house which Solomon has built for a house of sacrifice to Israel and a house of prayer for all people. And he tells Solomon that my name shall be there forever, verses 12 and 16. In other words, God was telling Solomon that he, God, would make himself known there 
and that he would be called upon there. God promised to answer the prayers of the people should they be made there in that place at any time. There can be no greater encouragement to a discouraged soul than to come to God on bended knee and know that one's prayers will be heard and that God will answer them according to his goodwill and in his time. And by the same token, there can be nothing more despairing which brings a sense of complete hopelessness than to know that God refuses to hear one's prayers. We have many examples of such a thing in Jeremiah. The sins of the people became so great that God refused to hear their prayers or prayers for them. The people refused to repent of their wickedness, and so God's patience had come to an end. In Jeremiah 7.16, we read, as God is speaking to Jeremiah, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Seest thou not what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Then again in Jeremiah eleven fourteen, as God tells Jeremiah to tell the people of his impending judgment, God repeats a second time his previous commandment concerning prayer for Israel. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry for prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry unto me for their trouble. And then again we read the same thing for a third time in Jeremiah 14, 11 to 12, Then said the Lord unto me, Pray not for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and an oblation, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. What a horrifying thought that God's chosen people could come to such a debauched spiritual state that even God their Savior would refuse to hear their prayers and would now not extend his hand of mercy or grace to them, but rather would now have to consume them. Well, dearly beloved, there is a serious lesson here for us today. God is holy. God is righteous. God is a consuming fire. Though he is long-suffering, he is nonetheless sovereign. He will not be mocked. The Bible says that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. It is a most solemn warning. God is not to be trifled with. His grace, mercy, and long-suffering is never to be taken for granted. For he is Lord, and as Lord he reigns supreme. No one, no matter how privileged a position of grace one may have experienced, is spared his hand of judgment for unconfessed sin. 
Many times, genuine believers have been taken home prematurely because of unrepentant sin. For God is no respecter of persons. I fear for our country. I fear for our governments. I fear for our churches. And I fear for our young people. I fear for our fathers and husbands. I fear we have chosen a path without God. I fear we have chosen self over Christ. And I also fear we have gone too far to turn back as a nation, as a people. And as a result, our peace is threatened. Our homes are broken. Our children are spiritually bereft of biblical training and knowledge of God and who he is, what he expects of them, and how much he truly loves and cares for them. They know nothing of Calvary and its implications. Our churches have abandoned the gospel of Christ, the only hope for man's salvation. Instead, many have replaced it with a specially sociable and socially acceptable synthetic gospel of self-worth that leads countless millions to death and destruction and a Christless eternity. Our homes are falling apart because our fathers have abandoned them, not only physically, but spiritually as well. Our governments are without direction and have no answers to the complex problems that face them daily because they have legislated God out of our parliaments, out of our schools, and now out of our homes by removing children from those homes if they are being raised according to biblical standards of discipline. Our young people are without hope and direction and have been falsely led to trust in education and money and power as a means of a fulfilling life. And yet we still hear that small, still voice calling to us ever so faintly. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. We have a remedy for our woes here in our main text. In verse 13, we see that God controls the natural environment. He causes the rain to fall or not to fall. He commands the locust to devour the land or to spare the land. He sends pestilence or diseases among his people, or he prevents such things. That extends to present-day circumstances as well. Never before in history have we experienced so many natural catastrophes in the form of tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, volcanoes, famines, etc., as we have in recent years and decades. Never before have we experienced such a rapid spread in diseases such as cancers, AIDS, diabetes, and now COVID-19. 
Never before have we had such an alarming rate of increase in drug addiction, alcohol addiction, gambling addiction, pornography addiction, and homelessness. All of that should be a wake-up call to the church. The Lord's return is at hand. The church needs to be ready. The church needs to repent of its sin of complacency and take more seriously its call to reach others for Christ. God was telling Solomon that national repentance was required in verse 14. Repentance, prayer, and reformation. God expects his people, if they have dishonored his name by their sins and iniquities, to accept the consequences for their sins. They need to humble themselves under his hand of judgment and to pray for the removal of that judgment and seek God's face and favor for themselves as well as for their nation. But this cannot be possible unless God's people first and foremost turn from their wicked ways and return to the God against whom they have rebelled. National mercy was promised to Solomon if the people did that, and then God would forgive their sins, which brought his judgment upon them, and he would heal their land. When sins are forgiven, healing takes place, both of the body and the soul. Then in verses 17 and 18, God promises Solomon that he would perpetuate Solomon's kingdom, but only upon the condition that Solomon would be obedient to God's commandments as his father David was before him. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shalt observe my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. But if ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them. And this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. Oh, do you see the heart of God? See how ready and willing God is to bless his people if they will only submit to his word. King David truly understood this. In order to experience God's blessing, one had to keep a short account of one's sins. Sins needed to be confessed and repented of, and then one could fully expect and experience God's amazing grace and blessings. And that is why David was able to pen those most beautiful words in conclusion to Psalm 23, verses 4 to 6. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff they comfort me. 
Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. King David certainly learned the hard way, the ruination of sin, and the need to quickly confess it and repent. He knew the burden that God's holy judgment would bring as a consequence. His sin with Bathsheba in a moment of weakness brought untold hardships and immediate judgment from God in the loss of David's first child with her. When David realized what he had done and then tried to cover up his adulterous affair by sending Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, to his death, he complicated matters and heaped greater judgment upon himself. God had to send Nathan the prophet to David in order to bring David to repentance and realize the severity of his sinful deeds. And though the Lord forgave David's sin and spared his life, there were nevertheless very serious consequences to bear. In verse 11 of 2 Samuel 12, God pronounces his judgment upon David's household. Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of his own. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. Yet, through it all, David found grace in God's sight. David learned to cleave to God through it all. And though David still committed other sins later on with even more serious consequences, David continued to trust in God's mercy and goodness and grace. He turned to God in his time of need. He turned to God in his time of prosperity. He turned to God for strength to carry on. He turned to God for direction in life, knowing that God would never forsake him if David's heart was right before the Lord. The scriptures identify David as the apple of the eye of the Lord. Psalm 17, verses 6 to 8. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me and hear my speech. Show thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them that put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. And so, going back to our main text in Second Chronicles 7.17, God was telling young King Solomon that if Solomon would walk before him as his father David did, then Solomon could expect the same kind of blessing as David got, and that Solomon's heirs would continue to rule in Israel. But if Solomon ever turned away from God, 
and turned to other gods to serve them, then God would heap severe judgment upon his chosen people Israel and tear the kingdom away from them. And that is exactly which took place later on. King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the most prosperous, the richest king in the history of the world, turned his back on God, his father, and began serving other gods. Solomon entered into such a state of debauchery that it is difficult to imagine possible for a child of God. But we read about the state of his affairs in 1 Kings 11, 1 to 10. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go in to them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love, and he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise he did for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. How these scriptures should speak to us this morning. Over 3,000 years have passed since Solomon ruled over Israel, but the nature of man has not changed. Wealth, wisdom, power, position of life has no ability to restrain the sin nature from its wickedness. It has, as often been shown, rather the ability to magnify one's propensity to sin. Without the grace of God, man is totally incapable of overcoming his ruinous state. In the beginning, when Solomon was first born in 2 Samuel 12, verse 24, we read that the Lord loved him. But now here we read in 1 Kings eleven nine that the Lord was angry with Solomon. Though the scriptures are silent upon this matter, I cannot help but wonder what Solomon's state of mind was like when he was on his deathbed. 
Surely he must have known how much he had grieved the God of his fathers. Surely he must have regretted his lust for women and how that lust took him away from serving only the one true God. Surely he must have agonized over the many sons he may have sacrificed in their infancy to the false god Moloch of the Ammonites. But it was all too late. He would soon meet his God face to face. And we too, like the saints of old, are often at a fork in the road. The old man, the old sin nature, wishes to go in one direction. But the new man gently calls us in the opposite direction. Which one will we choose? Which path will we take? There is so much turmoil around us today, so much confusion, so much destruction, and it is getting worse and worse day by day. Though our leaders and government may sometimes mean well and try their best to steer our country in the right direction, it will all be in vain without God as our captain. We as God's people need to trust God as we have never trusted him before, not only with our souls, but also trust him enough to direct our daily paths in life. But this, of course, cannot be possible if we have never been born again of the Spirit of God. Too many churches have perverted the gospel of salvation so that countless millions who believe they are saved are instead tragically headed to a Christless eternity. Oh, dear friend, I ask you this solemn question, are you saved? And if you are, what proof do you offer to show that you have passed from death onto life? The Apostle Paul's admonition to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith is a very serious one. Do we truly understand the cost that was involved in the redemption of our souls? Do we truly understand why you and I have been redeemed? Do we really understand that we are no longer our own, for we have been bought with a price? If we do, then there will be spiritual fruit in our lives. There will be a genuine love for the souls of men. There will be a genuine desire to walk closely with our Savior and to give him his rightful position in our lives. There will be a genuine desire and commitment to spend more time with Jesus, our Lord, in prayer and in the study of his word. There will be a genuine desire and effort to obey his commandments. And maybe, just maybe, there may be some hope of changing our country's direction. For he says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Let's pray. Blessed Lord Jesus, we thank thee so much for thy loving kindness to us.
and the grace that sought us and bought us. We thank thee for the word of God that we have in our hands, but Lord, we confess we do not read it nearly enough as we should. Help us, Lord, to repent of that terrible habit. Now part us with thy blessings, we pray, and if the Lord be not come, may it please thee once again to bring us together next Lord's Day around thy table, for we ask it in thy name and for thy glory. Amen.